I like to mention it regularly, but one of the wonderful things about the style of preaching that we do here, going through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, passage by passage, verse by verse, is it makes it so we cannot simply skip over the areas of the Bible that are difficult to understand. We cannot simply just glaze over certain issues that the Bible directly deals with simply because we don't, because it's hard to understand or it doesn't compute with our 21st century minds. I freely admit that there are very difficult aspects in biblical interpretation. In a lot of ways, that's how I, I live my life, right? Coming to various texts and seeing what God has to say through these texts. It is a difficult process and job to interpret the scriptures. There's a lot of it. However, one of the most important things that we should do as Christians is be willing to submit ourselves to the Bible every minute of every day. Our lives should be so focused and centered upon the Word of God, this book, that to cross it in any way should cause us to fall into paralyzing fear. We should be fearful to not be in step with the Word of God. We should be pouring over this thing to be sure that we are keeping in step with the will of God that is revealed within the Word of God. One of the important questions to ask as we come to the Bible is, will you obey what God says and believe what God says, despite how difficult it may be? Will you believe it and will you hold on to it? Will you accept it? And not only accept it, will you love it and hold it dear in your heart because it is from God? So I won't sugarcoat it. I think that this passage may very well be one of the harder passages that I've had to deal with uh, in our assembly on Sunday mornings in the last three years that I've been pastoring here. This is not an easy subject because it's an emotionally charged subject at times. There's been abuses in certain areas of the church. There's been abuse within marriages. And so it's very difficult to come to a subject like this because of all of the information That is involved and to say, this is what God has to say. But the problem is not concerning information and that the Bible lacks information. Sometimes you come to a passage, you come to a subject, and it's like, well, the Bible doesn't seem to say as much as I'd really like it to say on this subject. That is not this subject. But it is difficult in that it is emotionally tired at times. And guaranteed, specifically women, have experienced abuse by the hands of husbands. They've experienced abuse in what was supposed to be a godly atmosphere within the church. But the Bible has a position in the area of submission. And I will joyfully refuse to shrink away from what the Bible says. This morning, we're going to talk about being a biblical wife. And next week, we're going to talk about being a biblical husband. And you may think, well, why all of this drama as we come into talking about being a wife? But specifically, we're going to talk about the area of submission in the context of marriage. The position that I hold to, and there are several positions uh, that you can find within the church, but the position that I hold to in regard to the subject is called complementarianism. The, the word complement, but not with an I in the middle, with an E in the middle. So it's not like we're complimenting each other. Oh, nice hair, a nice shirt. It's a matter of complimenting with an E in the middle that we complement one another. Now let me define what this word means. Complementarianism is the belief that men and women complement each other in their various roles and duties while maintaining total equality. And that is on your bulletin, on the back of your bulletin, that definition. So when I say the word complementarian, you can constantly go back and remind yourself what it means. Complementarianism 
is the belief that men and women complement each other in their various roles and duties while maintaining total equality. I believe this to be the biblical position. And let me tell you from the outset what this position makes very clear. And I think John Piper says it very well. He says, so complementarians resist the impulses of a chauvinistic, dominating, and abusive culture on the one side, and the impulses of a sex-blind, gender-leveling, unisex culture on the other side. And we take our stand between these two ways of life, not because the middle ground is a safe place, which it certainly emphatically is not, but because we think this is the good plan of God in the Bible for men and women. Very good, as he says in Genesis 1. And so the position that we take, it is not a a compromising position. It is the position that is actually very much not safe within our culture today. The world does not appreciate this position. It is far more on the side of making us become blind regarding the sexes and roles and everything else. But we need to not only be clear that we disagree with the world and their gender leveling, But we also need to be clear that we do not, and emphatically do not, hold to a chauvinistic, abusive domination that goes on not only across the world in certain societies, but certainly in the church. So do you understand that? So it's that two sides. You have that hardcore, chauvinistic side that women just do what I say, and then you have the other side where we just level the genders, we level the roles, that those things just simply don't matter. We hold here between those two. So in regard to the former, I hope you have the eyes to see what our society is systematically, or really the latter, systematically doing away with. Our society is doing away with the beautiful truth that men and women are different. And although they are clearly and wonderfully equal in value as image bearers of God, God has given different roles to the sexes. Simply stated, men and women are different Beyond the plumbing, if you get what I mean. We are different. And no matter how much the world is trying to stifle this truth, it's true. And this simply goes back to the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. If the world would only read the first three chapters of the Bible, it would clear up so many of the problems that they have. Stuff that's written thousands of years ago is so relevant to all of these questions that we have today in regard to sex. Don't skip out on this. Grab your Bible. Turn back to Genesis chapter 1. I want you to see this from the Bible. What I want to do as we come into the Colossians passage is really give you a good foundation. You have to have this foundation if we're going to understand this passage right. So go all the way back to the beginning of your Bible in Genesis chapter 1. Now we are pre-fall. Sin has not entered the world Look at Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Any view that would take, or that would make it seem as though women are less valuable than men is fundamentally flawed at its foundation and needs to go back to the beginning of the Bible, like I just mentioned, in Genesis chapter 1. 
Both men and women, male and female, were created in the image of God. He does not say that man was made in God's image and women were not, as though man is more reflective of God than women. They were both created in the image of God. And this is foundational to the whole discussion. Because men and women are both image bearers of God. The image of God is seen in a woman and the image of God is seen in a man. They both bear it. Okay. So now turn over to chapter 2 within Genesis. In chapter 2, we get the initial picture of the marriage relationship. Look beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord said, the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he could call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of the ribs and, and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed and so you notice that before eve was created adam was running the show adam is the one who named all the creatures He is God's sole image bearer on earth before Eve comes along. And he was functioning in the power and the position that God had given to him. Not because he was innately more valuable than the woman, but because he was created first. And so Adam names all the animals that flew. He names all the animals that are on the ground. But God clearly says in verse 20 of chapter 2 that there was no helper for him. There was nobody to help Adam. Adam's looking around and there's a bull moose and a cow. He looks further and there's a, a rooster and a hen. He sees a buck and a doe, but there's nobody for Adam. And so God causes him to fall asleep. He fashions a woman from Adam's rib and then he brings the woman to the man. And what does Adam do? The, the, the old joke, maybe it's a pastor's joke, but the old joke is when God brings Eve to Adam, he says, whoa, man. And that's how the word woman came from. So now, you know, that's, that's in the Hebrew if you look really close. <laughs> but what does Adam do? God brings Eve to him and Adam names her. There's headship evident in the fact that he names her. Eve doesn't name herself. God doesn't name Eve. Adam takes responsibility for her, recognizes her as God's gift to him as his helper, and he names her. And so within the first couple chapters of the Bible, we gain an understanding of what the marriage relationship even is supposed to look like. You have two people who come together. Both of them are equal in that they have been made in the image of God. However, God has made them different from each other and has given them both unique roles to fill. So within every marriage, what is intended to be displayed is that you have a leader and you have a helper. The leader cannot lead or properly lead if the helper refuses. The helper cannot help if the leader does not lead well or properly. And men, we're coming after you next week with that. Eve is referred to as Adam's helper. Notice again that this is before the fall. 
This is pre-fall, which means that the relationship of man and woman as the leader and the helper is a pre-fall delineation. It is not a result of the fall. There was a movie that came out within the last decade or so called The Help. And it was based in a a town in Mississippi, I think, where all of these uh, black ladies were employed by white people to help in the home. And they referred to all of these ladies as The Help. And this shows that we have a kind of negative understanding of what it means to be a helper, doesn't it? it when we think of, oh, well, Eve's the helper, or the, the, the wife is the helper, we automatically kind of think secondary. You are less. But that's not the case at all. We have to understand when we discuss these terms what the Bible says about these terms, how the Bible views these terms. So where do you see the concept of being a help found in the Bible? How about, I lift my eyes into the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Referring to God himself as our help. The Spirit of God is referred to as the helper. God the Spirit, referred to as the Helper. So that's the biblical idea behind a helper. It is not secondary, low-level person. It is really reflecting God. And so a wife should never feel diminished or negated in any way by being called a helper if God himself is referred to as a helper. Twice, at least for the examples here. So let me state it this way. A woman is not only designed to be a helper but she can help in a way that no other can. If it was a matter of of a helper in the sense that Adam just needed another hand, God could have created us to have three hands if if that's what it it simply was. Or or four hands. Or he could have created another man, right, to come over and to help Adam out in the garden. But that is not what he did. He created Eve, this specially designed being, to help him. Now, if you're still in Genesis, turn over to chapter 3 in Genesis where things get really sticky. This is where it all collapses, where you have what is referred to as the fall. And after Adam and Eve both commit treason against God and they disobey him in the Garden of Eden, God levies three punishments for those who played a part in this rebellion. But before we look at the text, let's get something very clear. Adam completely failed in the Garden. That's why we call it Adam's fall. Adam is at fault for this situation. Adam failed to lead his wife. Adam failed to lead her away from the serpent. He failed to fulfill his role as the head of the family. What he should have done is he should have gone over to the snake and squashed the thing. He should have gone over and said, I won't use the SH word, shut up, uh, be quiet. He should have went over and said, be quiet, you snake, and stomped on his head is what he should have done. And the response to this failure God lays out what the repercussions would be. Look at chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. And I will, and all the days of your life I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is huge in terms of the rest of the Bible when you consider who's going to be the one to crush the snake. Adam should have done it, but who's going to be the actual one to come and crush the serpent? One of the biggest questions that you have to answer in the Bible. And of course we get to Jesus, where Jesus is the one who crushes the head of the snake. Verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now listen. Your desire shall be for your husband 
and he shall rule over you. Now, another way to present that or to translate that would be, your desire shall be against your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And so God tells the snake that he is going to be on his belly for the rest of his days. And that somebody is going to eventually come and crush his head. God tells the man that he's going to have to deal with the difficulty of yielding a crop from the ground and providing for himself and that he will ultimately die. And what does he tell the woman? Surely I will multiply your pain and childbirth. I know you women are not thankful for that aspect of the fall. But he also says, your desire, another translation, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And so the relationship of leader and helper that was perfect pre-fall, is now on troubling grounds. The beautiful, perfect, sinless relationship that they once had in the garden, where Adam would lead and Eve would help, was now marred by sin, and it would forever crack every subsequent marriage that would ever come about in the rest of the history. And it's important to have this backdrop as we come to this text in our Colossians this morning, because the reason that it's so important is that the expectation for spirit-indwelled people have been that have been married to Christians, is that the pre-fall relationship that Adam and Eve had should still be seen in our marriage relationships today. So the way it was before the fall is still the purpose. That's still the goal. That's still the idea. Man and woman together, totally equal, yet not interchangeable, totally equal, yet fulfilling various roles. The call of this text this morning is to essentially bring us back to before sin ever entered into the world. The expectation from Paul is that our marriages would reflect the marriage of Adam and Eve before that fateful day in the garden. And that the woman would be the God-given helper that she was made to be. And that the man would be the God-given leader that he was meant to be. And so with all of that important introduction in mind, flip back over to Colossians chapter 3. And I'll begin reading our text again. In verse 17. So with that in mind, let's read verse 18 again. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. I want to give you a heads up now that we're going to be dealing with the wives today. We're going to be dealing with husbands next week. So If you're a wife here today, don't feel like I'm just picking on you. I'm going to pick on your husbands next week. Okay? These are such vital subjects, and I wanted to give a lot of time to each of them. But in verse 17, that I didn't read, but it's there, whatever you do in word or deed, do in the name of the Lord. So it's whatever you do, whether it's some kind of action or word, it's all to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. When you think about all the the words and deeds within your life, most of them are going to fall under these various positions that you see in the rest of the text. So the rest of the text goes on to talk about wives and husbands and children and and slaves. And and so basically the, the idea of like being an employer and an employee, basically all of our words and deeds fall within those kinds of categories. Our entire lives, no matter what we do and say, should be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. So if you are a boss or you are an employee or a husband or a wife or you are a 
child, what you do should be in light of verse 17, that every word or deed is done in the name of the Lord Jesus. And the first thing that he mentions is concerning the wife. He says in verse 18 explicitly that she is to submit to her husband in a way that is fitting to the Lord. And I want to reiterate that men have long abused and have been harsh with women. If you notice verse 19, he says to the husbands, husbands love your wives. And what's the explicit command after that? Do not be harsh with them. Men have long been abusive. They have been harsh. Christian men and Christian leaders have long beat women over the head with their Bibles without actually opening their Bibles. Men have misused their own bodies, which are typically stronger than a woman's body, and they have been given to domineering and subjecting women physically to themselves. Men have long enjoyed being the typical male chauvinist pigs and relish in it. Napoleon Bonaparte once said, women are nothing but machines for producing children. But in spite of the terrible treatment of women, even in many societies today, what does the Bible have to say about women? That's the real question. What does the Bible have to say about women and even uh, wives specifically? As you scan through the pages of the Bible and you come across women there, what do you find? Let me tell you what you don't find. The Bible never says that a woman should be nothing but barefoot and pregnant and have to generally be in the kitchen 100% of the time unless she's dealing with your eight kids. That is never the idea that the Bible gives. The Bible never paints a picture that a man must be this dominant hunter-gatherer warrior, macho muscles busting out of his shirt, and the woman is this timid, weak, mild, hardly able to care for herself, just lost without a man. That's not the picture that you get in the Bible. It never paints that. But what do you find? What do you find concerning women in the Scriptures? I liked what Gavin Ortland says. He said, just to pick out one example, many women throughout the Old Testament were prophets. Miriam, Deborah, Huldah, and so on. And in the New Testament, the gift of prophecy is clearly given to both men and women. So God has used women even for prophetic purposes throughout both the Old and the New Testaments. You see, Jesus interact with his followers where there were women present and learning from Jesus alongside the men. You remember the the story of the sisters Mary and Martha, right? Jesus comes into Martha's house and she's busying herself preparing all of this food for her guests. And what happens? Martha gets all flustered because her sister Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet instead of helping serve the food. And what does Jesus do? Does he say, yeah, Mary, what are you doing? Get away from my feet. Go and and, and feed us. Go get our food. Don't you know? Don't you understand the, the difference between you and a man? No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, no, Mary... Or Martha, what your sister has chosen will not be taken away from her. See, Mary had chosen what was right. She sat at the feet of the Lord as as a woman learning from the Lord Jesus over and above something silly like providing that. So you see women like Phoebe in Romans chapter 16 mentioned by Paul. She was a deaconess in the church. She was a a formalized uh, 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 servant within the church of Christ. Or what about the women in the family tree of Jesus? You look at the Old Testament genealogies where families are listed and you rarely ever come across the name of a woman. And then you come to Jesus' family tree and several women are listed like Rahab and Ruth. And that's one of those things that might seem subtle but really jump off the page. Or in Acts chapter 16, you have Lydia, the seller of purple. She was an industrious woman and it says that she was a worshiper of God. 
Or what about this concept of a, of a capable wife, a, a virtuous woman in Proverbs chapter 31? Is it that barefoot and pregnant idea? No, it's not at all. In fact, let me read it to you, this translation. It says, Who can find a capable wife? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will not lack anything good. She rewards him with good, not evil, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the merchant ships, bringing her food from far away. She rises while it is still night and provides food for her household and portions for her servants. She evaluates a field and buys it. She plants a vineyard with her earnings. She draws on her strength and reveals that her arms are strong. She sees that her profits are good and her lamp never goes out at night. She extends her hands to the spinning staff and her hands hold the spindle. Her hands reach out to the poor and she extends her hands to the needy. She is not afraid for her household when it snows for all in her household are doubly clothed. She makes her own bed coverings. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known at the cities, city gates, where he sits among the elders of the land. She makes and sells linen garments. She delivers belts to the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing, and she can laugh at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and loving instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the activities of her household and is never idle. Her, hu- her sons rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also praises her. Many women are capable, he says, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting but a woman who fears the Lord will be praised give her the reward of her labor and let her works praise her at the city gates that is a biblical woman that is the Bible's idea of a woman she works with willing hands the heart of her husband trusts her she brings in the food she works in at night she buys fields she plants vineyards with her earnings she even has strong arms she has good profit and on and on and on it goes this woman can do everything her husband praises her many women are capable he says but you surpass them all the bible is clear That women are gifted and even gifted for acknowledged positions within the church. I mentioned the deaconess, Phoebe, a minute ago. And I believe that the Bible allows, certainly for women deaconesses within the church, to serve the church. An office of the church meant for serving the body of Christ in physical, tangible ways alongside male deacons. They don't exercise teaching or authoritative positions like being an elder. But the Bible clearly allows for them to have an official servant position within the church alongside of men. Or you even think of women teaching women. Titus chapter 2 explicitly talks about the older women teaching the younger women. So there's teaching roles within the church certainly available. Let's go a step further. In conversation, a, a woman can certainly interact with, object to, or even correct the theology of a man. You see this happen in the book of Acts with Priscilla and Aquila, this husband and wife team that apparently have rhyming names, Priscilla and Aquila, but they run into this guy named Apollos that the book of Acts says says about Apollos. It says he was an eloquent man, and it says that he was well-versed in the scriptures, and it turned out that Apollos actually misunderstood some scriptures, and the husband and wife both teach team Apollos concerning doctrine, concerning correct doctrine. Priscilla is more well-versed in the scriptures, apparently, than even this eloquent man and one who understands the scriptures. And so I want to set the tone for this discussion on submission with this kind of information to distance ourselves from the concept that a Christian woman is simply to shut, to be quiet, let the men do the work, let the men do the talking, and to sit in the back of the room knitting mittens. Instead, uh, I want to paint the picture that the Bible not only validates womanhood, 
but lifts it up to be a beautiful and awesome thing where bright and intelligent women do incredible things for God. And so when you read this verse, which we're finally getting to, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord, you read that verse in the context of the entire Bible. You should read it with the lenses of God magnifies and enables and loves women and women are equal with men as image bearers of God, yet they have been called to distinct roles within the home and the church. But if you do it the other way, and you think that on this side, that the Bible tramples on women and that women are second rate, then you're going to come to horrifically wrong conclusions biblically and within your life. Or if you do it the other way, and you think that men and women have been flattened out to do and to be the same thing, that they're simply interchangeable, then you're going to end up going the wrong direction there. So with this biblical understanding of equality and the biblical understanding of how he elevates women, how then do we understand biblical submission? How do we understand wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord? Submission is something that all of us are to do. Every single one of us, regardless of our position, we all submit in various aspects of our lives. You think of Romans chapter 13, makes it clear that we are to submit to our governing authorities. Hebrews chapter 13 makes it clear that the church should obey the church elders and to submit to them. The church as a whole is called to submit to Jesus. He is our head, he is our authority, and we submit to him. The church is also to submit to one another. Ephesians chapter 5 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there is mutual submission where we should submit to each other. There shouldn't be an attitude of dominance in the church, but of submission, whether it's coming from a man or whether it's coming from a woman. So there is submission to the governing authorities. When we don't, there is chaos. And I think you're seeing that in our country now. There is submission to the church elders. When we don't, there is disorder and problems in the church and in our lives. There is submission to Christ. When we don't, there is sin. There is submission to one another. When we don't, there's a spirit of dominance. And when it comes to the marriage relationship, there is submission here as well. And when there isn't, there will be conflict. Did you know that every passage that speaks of the relationship of the husband and wife, and specifically when it's addressing the wife, every single time in the New Testament it does this, it addresses this area of submission. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Right here, Colossians 3. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. 1 Peter 3, 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Titus chapter 2, verse 3 to 5. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves so much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Safe to say that this is obviously an important thing for us to get straight. It's not something that we can stick on the shelf and not deal with. It's not something that we can just slide under the rug. It's constantly referenced in the New Testament. But what you simply never see within these verses is God then telling the husbands, now, I told your wife to be submissive to you, but if she isn't, you put her into submission. You never see that. The Bible never says that a man should be forceful and body slam a woman into submission. Never see it. We'll deal with that more next week. But if you're the kind of guy that thinks that that's what you're supposed to do, you don't have a clue. The command is directly to women. Keep yourself submissive to your husband. In other words, the woman has the power to submit or not to submit to her husband. 
She can easily choose not to submit in a certain area. But to make that choice is going to cause that conflict in the relationship and will result in sinful behavior. But this is something that a woman is choosing to do when she marries a man. This is her choice. She's choosing this by entering into the relationship in the first place. What is happening and what he's saying is not that a woman is choosing to submit herself to all men. That simply by your gender, that you are therefore choosing to submit to every man. This is an unmarried woman seeking and willing to be a godly wife and submitting her own self to her own husband. Some of you know your Bibles well and you know that there's a parallel account over in Ephesians 5, where this is fleshed out even more, where the Bible calls men to be like Jesus and love their wives in a sacrificial way, the kind of sacrifice where he died for the church. And we're going to hit hard on that next week for the men specifically. But did you know that women are called to be like Jesus in regard to this area of submission? Think of the Trinity. Think of simply the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Are they not co-equal? Absolutely. Are they not co-eternal? These two persons of the Trinity? We spent a lot of time earlier in Colossians laboring over this point. That Christ is no created chump. He is no mere human. In chapter 1 we saw that He is the Lord over all. He is the Creator. He is magnificent in His sufficiency and His supremacy. That He's over all things. That this is the Christ. This is God. Yet what do we clearly see in the life of Christ? What do we see in the life of God in the flesh? You see submission. Jesus chooses to submit himself to the will of the Father. The Father loves him. The Father has a perfect plan for him. And Jesus willingly, not begrudgingly, willingly submits himself to the Father. The Father did not force Jesus to submit. Jesus willingly submitted to him. Not my will, but yours be done. Always about whose business, not his own business. Twelve years old, I'm about my father's business. He takes upon the form of a servant made in the likeness of men, Philippians 2. Jesus submitted himself to the father. And so this idea of complementarianism, that a husband and wife complement one another, is not only rooted in the beginning of the Bible, it's not only seen in the relationship of Jesus and the father, but it's beautifully expressed in the relationship of husband and wife. Look again at the back of your bulletin. I put another quotation there at the bottom. This is from a a female blogger describing complementarian relationship. Complementarianism, complementarians believe that males were designed to shine the spotlight on Christ's relationship to the church and the Lord God's relationship to Christ in a way that females cannot. And that females were designed to shine the spotlight on the church's relationship to Christ and Christ's relationship to the Lord God in a way that males cannot. Who we are as male and female is ultimately not about us. It's about testifying to the story of Jesus. We do not get to dictate what manhood and womanhood are all about. Our creator does. That is the basis of complementarianism. And so that's what we do. As another person said regarding the husband and wife, equal but not interchangeable. You cannot go to that other side of the spectrum that flattens out the roles of men and women as though role simply doesn't matter in the 20th and the 21st centuries. As though men and women are simply interchangeable. As though a man can fully be and do what a woman does and a woman can fully be and do what a man does. It simply isn't true. And the simplicity of our biology speaks to that fact. 
Society has told us, and feminism specifically has preached, that a woman is only valuable when she can perform in the roles that are given to men. A woman is only valuable when she can perform in roles that are given to men. And so it's the feminist, not the Bible-believing Christian, that raises men up and views them as supreme, and then says that a woman is only valuable as a man when she can do the things that a man can do. And I simply reject that. Without any reservation or any kind of patronization, women are beautiful and wonderful and have been given remarkable gifts and talents and abilities that they should take immense joy in. And the same goes for men. And so it's important to get this right because it's really a matter of getting the gospel right. Churches that get this wrong cloud the gospel because the husband and wife relationship is a picture ultimately of the gospel. And so as we close, let me direct your attention to one more passage in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. If you want to turn over there with me, Ephesians 5, I want to read you a few verses, beginning in verse 22. It says this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so it's very clear. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husband is the head of the wife. And what is that a parallel to? It's a, rela- it's a parallel to Christ being the head of the church. As the church submits to Jesus, so wives submit to their husbands. As Jesus loves the church, so a husband loves his wife. And that's a lot of love. Like Jesus nourishes his bride, the church, so a husband nourishes his wife. The man and the woman, equal in dignity, but distinct in role, they reflect the relationship that Jesus has to the church. They reflect the gospel. And until we really dig deep into that, which we will more next week, this idea of submission on the part of the wife and of headship on the part of the husband will only ever seem antiquated to our modern ears. But when we truly grasp the relationship of Jesus and the church and we understand how biblical womanhood looks when you scan the entire Bible and you understand how biblical manhood looks when you scan the Bible, then we can view submission and headship in its proper context. And so wives, as a specific application to you this morning, and however hard and grating it is to our ears in the 21st century, biblically speaking, are you submitting to your husband? Do texts like this come across as a joke? Or as is fitting in the eyes of the Lord, do you submit to him as the church submits to Jesus? You may have never made a conscious choice to submit to yourself to your husband. Maybe you intentionally seek to rule over him like it says in Genesis. Maybe you seek to steamroll your husband. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And so you have taken your husband and beaten him into a corner so you can have all the say. 
That's simply not what a biblical relationship looks like. That is as unbiblical as it would be for your husband to beat you into a corner verbally, mentally, or physically about submission. The beauty of the Christian marriage can only be seen properly when the leader and the helper serve and love one another in the way that Christ and the church serve one another. And so reflect on these things. Reflect on this passage. Reflect on these truths. Frankly, I hope that a a sermon like this and a text like this can, can at minimum kick up a bunch of questions and that as a church family, we can come together and wrestle with them, answer them. And I look forward to seeing how the Spirit uses this text. Let's pray. Lord, although a, a difficult text in our modern setting, we pray that we'll understand it biblically. And Lord, I fall over words and I lack eloquence and I lack maybe even some understanding on this. But I pray that you'll even help me, the leadership and others here to Understand what the Bible has to say in regard to this subject as we continue serving in this place. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Can you stand with me as we sing together? <laughs>